I remember one time I got a phone call and I, I picked it up and this woman was like, hi, I'm like Nancy from AOL. Can I talk to, um, she said my mom's name. And I was like, like, oh shit, this is it. This is, <laughs> this is, this is where they're coming after me. And I was like, she's not here right now, but this is her husband. Can I, can I help you? <laughs> like trying to, trying to avoid looping in my mom to this. But it was just a marketing email. I just wanted her to upgrade to something. But just to give you a sense of uh, the paranoia that I started having towards the end of it, that's it's a big part of why I just dropped out of this scene. Welcome to AOL. You've got post. Welcome. You've got mail. Would you please state your handle in the years you're active on AOL? So my real name is Matt Mazur, and I went by the handle Tau back in the day. I was active on AOL from roughly 1998 to 2001, which corresponded to me being about 13 to 16 years old. Nice. And I usually ask everyone this, but um, do, you, do you remember around the first time you used a computer, like your first, your first memory, I guess, with uh, computers? Yeah, I, I couldn't tell you what kind of computer it was. It was nothing fancy. I think my mom or dad just went to like CompUSA and picked up some computer, which was amazing at the time. But, you know, it was one of these big bulky towers and a big monitor. And it was nothing to brag about. So do you remember the first time you got on AOL? Yeah, I remember probably around 97, 98. Everybody started getting AOL around that time. I remember all my friends got it. And it was just this amazing experience. Like we'd never been on the internet before and we get on and after school and chat with each other and just like, it, it was this completely new experience and we were all hooked on it. So what was it about uh, AOL? You think that made it so addictive or just wanting to be on it all the time? Just the ability to chat with friends on the computer was again it was just this completely new thing at the time and just being able to explore AOL and find find these chat rooms and um, yeah we can get into how I wound up in the programming scene but yeah it was just this really fun experience. Nice so how did you find the scene? <laughs> so I had a friend Jake who stumbled across Prague so Prague's were these just programs to enhance AOL. I think the first one I came across was AOL, which um, a bunch of other folks in this scene got started on too. But it had, as you know, like features like you could punt somebody offline and some other features that just let you do things on AOL that you weren't supposed to be able to do. And I, I, I remember just being mesmerized by this, like how, how is this possible? And I remember like just sitting around a computer with my friends, just playing around with these progs and like silly things like faders. If you remember those from back in the day, they let you change the uh, the color of the text that you were sending in chat rooms. Like it seems like a silly thing now to look back on and think about how amazed we were by these things. But we uh, we got really interested in these progs. And most of my other friends didn't go down the, the path of learning how to build them, but I became really interested in just learning how to do it. And I got the ball rolling for building my own. So did you start with like send keys or how did you figure out how to manipulate the Windows API, like what you were supposed to do to make them work? I was fortunate that by the time I got started in the programming scene, by about 1998, some others had already laid the groundwork so they had figured out that you could build progs using Visual Basic, for example, and had done some of the initial work to figure out how to use send keys or the Windows API to interact with AOL. And so when I first started learning about this, I got a hold of some of these BAS files. BAS files are these collections of code that let you interact with AOL. And I found some, I remember finding code for a welcome bot. A welcome bot was this like program you could run so that anytime anybody joined a chat room, it would automatically just say like, hey, welcome to the chat, so-and-so. That like on a timer or how'd that work? Yeah, I think, it, I think it was a timer that just checked the members of the room, like the list of people in the room every few seconds. And as soon as a new one was added to that list, it would recognize that and then send a message just saying like, hey, welcome. And um, at the time, a lot of people didn't know about welcome bots. And so like, it was kind of this cool things people would respond to the bot saying like, oh, hey, thanks thanks for welcoming me to the room. And um, so yeah, I got a hold of what some code somebody had written for a welcome bot. And uh, I remember just like printing it and throwing it in like a three ring binder and going through it like with a highlighter, trying to understand step-by-step step how it worked. And it was doing that and starting to build some of my own that helped me um, figure things out. 
Interesting. So it sounds like you're pretty, pretty serious about it. <laughs> yeah, I really wanted to build my own prog. Like I said, I, I played around with a few others and I was kind of a kid where like, I just like building things. Like you sit me down with some Legos and I could spend all day just building with Legos. I'd never done any coding before AOL, but once I learned that building these things was possible, I just became um, really like, hooked on learning, learning how to build these of my own. The first prog I built was called Revolution, and it was pretty basic. I think it had a lot of the functionality that a lot of the other progs had around that time. I was looking at it the other day. It had, it had a fader, which we talked about, punter, macros. Um, macros, as you'll probably recall, let you send like ASCII art to a chat room, a, a tool to let you stay online. So AOL would kick you offline after like 45 minutes if you were inactive. And so a lot of these progs back then had tools that let you avoid getting kicked offline laggers which let sent like complicated html to uh, chat rooms to or ims to slow things down scrollers which let you scroll a whole bunch of text at once in a chat room uh, mass mailing tool a text converter which let you take like a normal string of text and convert it into like uh, these ascii characters to make it look like a hacker was typing it so it's a bunch of like silly silly things like oh that. yeah elite speak right <laughs> forgot about that yeah 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 and at the time, it was just like this amazing capability. Like all, all my friends were on AOL and like I was uh, building these progs to just do things that you weren't supposed to be able to do on AOL. And I, I shared Revolution with my friends and um, a couple of them used it. I remember sitting around the cafeteria table in eighth grade and my friends had been trying out Revolution and punting people offline and, and things like that. And it was just this amazing feeling of having built something and having other people use it and yeah it really got me hooked on on programming it definitely sounds rewarding do you remember making the mass mailer did you like just find code or did you write your own mass mailer or? yeah I, I don't remember exactly i think for revolution i most of it was custom if i recall i think i built my own bass file it was called alpha 32.bass which i wound up releasing on its own separately but I'm sure that I copied some of the code from other Bass files, but I think I tried to do most of it from scratch. So alpha32.bass is definitely one that I remember. What made you want to release it to everyone? People were releasing their own Bass files. And so it kind of became this thing of like, who could create the best Bass file? And again, Bass files had, for, for the listeners who might not remember, like Bass file just had collections of tools for kind of building progs. So letting you read like what the members of the chat room are sending messages to the chat room or um, a lot of the, the the features that I talked about for that first prog, like there were tools in this bass file that let people do those kind of things. So I kind of wanted to like create the best bass file there was. And <laughs> I remember working on it for a while, just preparing it for launch. And I was, I was quite excited about it. And it's amazing that you remember it. I don't think it had, it wound up getting a lot of attention because around the same time, somebody else released one called DOS32.bass. Do you, do you recall that? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I, I remember a lot of the bass files around that time that were written by these amateur programmers like myself, they kind of followed different convention. I mean, we all kind of did things the same way and it was kind of in this like amateurish style. And then whoever released DOS 32, it, it was, it kind of took things to a whole new level. They just, they just had a very different way of like naming their variables and like writing their code. And I'm guessing that that person might've been older and more experienced programmer and just kind of came to it with a fresh experienced programmer perspective. And so I think DOS 32 really took the scene by storm and became the main one that a lot of people used to build their progs going forward. Yeah, I remember like I get all excited. I get a bass file and I look at all the functions or mod I think they're called modules back in those days. But like mm -hmm. then I realized like, oh, it's for a version of AOL that is discontinued. <laughs> and I get really disappointed. So what, what did the release process look like for Alpha 32? Like how did you get it out there? Because like GitHub and stuff didn't exist back then. Yeah, on AOL, I think there was a VB chat room, VB5, VB6. These were kind of the chat rooms that the product developers hung out in. And I don't remember exactly, but I'm guessing that I shared Revolution in there and I shared Alpha 32 in there. And yeah, there was no GitHub or anything like that at the time to just like publish this stuff. So it was kind of just shared around, just emailing files to each other. And I remember the whole like alpha beta thing, like, I don't know, most people didn't get out of alpha. Like you wanted to follow that convention. It was like a thing, I remember. 
Yeah. So I, I worked on Revolution and it was kind of my first shot at a prog. And I, I quickly wanted to build another one, build a newer, better prog. So I started working on one that became known as Meridian. It had a lot of the same features that Revolution had, but then added a bunch of other ones like a buddy transfer tool. So a lot of us back in the day had a lot of screen names, um, often ones that didn't belong to us. And there was no easy way to like transfer your buddy list from one account to another. So that was the worst. Yeah. So there were tools like this that helped you transfer those and had a bunch of other things too. Like it had the welcome bot, like we talked about, it had punter, like we talked about, and I started building more like dev tools. So there was a tool in Meridian that let you kind of hover over any, any element in AOL and it would give you the visual basic code to like reference that element. And that those kind of tools, those developer tools started paving the way for um, AOL files, which um, we can talk about in a minute. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, the API spy stuff was you know, invaluable when you're trying to program and stuff. So then can you talk about AOL files? Uh, is it AOL-files.com or? Yeah, it started originally, I started a site called Exploits Online, just hanging out in these chat rooms and being part of this AOL programmer community. I just had a lot of like versions of AOL and was just, just wanted to like share these tools that people were building. Um, so I, I created this little blog of my own called exploits online, where I just started writing about the AOL hacking stuff that I was doing. And eventually a guy named BMB, I think his real name was Brock. He, who was in this scene too, he said, Hey, do you want to start a site to, to kind of focus on this and we can work on it together. And so we also looped in another guy named Rob. He, he was the owner of the site and we started AOLfiles.com, which is yeah, just kind of a continuation of the work that I had been doing on this Exploits Online site. And I think it started pretty simple, like just tutorials on like how to program on AOL and how to work with various internal tools. And it grew over time, though, to have like a database of every exploit that people had discovered. And it had a lot of internal documentation to help folks like myself learn how to do this kind of AOL hacking work. Did you find all the exploits or did other people post some? Because like when we were kind of preparing for the show, I was asking about like the Rain Man tool and stuff. And you're like, well, yeah, I know Rain Man existed, but I don't really know a lot about it or whatever. So it seems like there's maybe like a collaboration of tools, like of different people's exploits and in one place. Is that right? Or Yeah, it was it was a combination of exploits that BNB and myself and Rob had discovered. And eventually a lot of other people got involved in AOL files too. One of the guys was, uh, I don't know how to say his name. It was like O-0-O-O-O-O. He, he started creating this resource, trying to document every exploit or AOL hacking thing that had happened like all time. That That's really interesting. It, like he uh, sounds like he wanted to have a whole inventory of everything, right? Yeah. And you can actually find archives of this. And like, he, he just broke it down by year. So you could click like 1999 and see all the exploits that had been discovered in 1999 and information about who discovered it and what impact it had and things like that. Did you discover any exploits? A handful. Yeah. So how familiar are you, are you with FDO or a uh, form display operation? I'm not very familiar with it. It'd probably be worthwhile maybe explaining it to the listeners as well. Like what uh, you said, form definition, what was it? Form display operation. So FDO is kind of like a way for AOL to build forms. So like if you, if you went to any like keyword on AOL, like keyword welcome, like it would bring up a form and it was FDO that controlled how that form was laid out. And also some of the like interactions, so like when you click a button, it would communicate with AOL's backend and perform operations. And so, so it's how it's how they wrote the so like let's say like the keyword. If you're bring up the keyword, that's like a window in AOL. It says keyword it has like a text box and like a little picture of a buddy. And you're saying that was like programmed in an FDO, most likely. I'm not sure if like the AOL employees were actually writing FDO or they had some other tool that like compiled into FDO. But regardless, FDO there was a there was an internal tool called Master AOL or Star Tool. Um, we've talked about this a little bit on previous episodes, but it was like this internal tool that AOL had that somehow got leaked. And it, it was like a zip file and it replaced a bunch of files in your AOL directory. And what it did was it added this little asterisk menu into AOL and it had a bunch of tools that you could use to do things that like developer type tools. 
And so one of them, for example, was that you could run your own FDO scripts. Um, another one was you like turned on logging and then you could just interact with AOL and it would show you all the like FDO that AOL was processing during that time. Yeah, so you're saying that you could, when you loaded like a, the key, let's say you loaded the keywords window, it would show you the FDO behind that. And then if you wanted, you could like modify it and have it show two text boxes instead of one just locally for fun or something. But then, then wasn't there a way to publish it too? Like you like, then you email it or something stupid like that. Is you know, that's one of the tools I was reading that like to update the database, you like would email the code and then it would like all of a sudden you'd have a new keyword or something. I don't know. I'm not sure how you actually got the FDO published. Um, there might have been ways. So it sounds like th there was like an e like a place on AOL where you could like upload your FDO and get it published as keywords if you have the right permissions. I could be conflating this with something else, but I was reading something. It might have been on your site. It was with something with where you can make windows. And it had the, the way to like the way the AOL folks were publishing it was right? it was through email and it was just like this giant joke just like years later like you're, you're accepting like code through email to you know to, to... that's uh it's amazing yeah <laughs> anyway so we got this master AOL tool the star tool and it let you write and execute your own FDO code and before FDO a lot of the exploits were focused on just manipulating the AOL software, like you'd have a, a modal window and like you could do things with the modal window that you weren't supposed to do, like show hidden fields or disable it. And that let you do various things that you weren't supposed to do just as a, as a simple example. Yeah. I think Chron I think the chronic was talking about that where he was able to like make stuff appear that wasn't supposed to appear. What FDO really let us do though, was like, it opened up a lot more avenues for doing things we weren't supposed to do on AOL because we, now we could not only generate our own forms, but kind of send our own commands to AOL server. And a lot of times that wasn't that interesting what you could do, but a lot of exploits were discovered this way. Like simple things like if you try to register a screen name, AOL would trim that screen name to remove any spaces that were before or after like the main part of your name. But some folks figured out that you could use FDO to send this like registration command to AOL. And if you included spaces before your screen name, then your screen name would actually get registered with the spaces before it, which is not something that you were supposed to be able to do. And I remember the first time I saw one of those indented screen names and I was just like blown away by, by how, like, how in the world did you figure this out? And a lot of the times th these were like closely held secrets. People didn't want to like share them because as soon as you started sharing them, they would get more attention and AOL would wind up fixing whatever bug led to it. So there was this kind of a, this balancing act between like wanting to share your discoveries, but also sometimes the good ones you didn't want to share because you wanted to, to keep them active for as long as you could. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I could see that being tricky because, uh, you know, usually teenagers want to get the notoriety, notoriety and stuff. So, you know. Yep. I can, I can talk about a couple other like exploits and interesting things though. Yeah, definitely. So there was part of what you could do with master AOL was, um, were called invokes. Uh, invokes were just like basically numbers. I think it was like a like a two-digit number, like 32 dash, and then another number. And they let you bring up forms that had been created in in AOL. So I think like every keyword had like an invoke. And if, if you knew the number, you could jump straight to that keyword. But there were also a lot of these forms that I don't think they had keywords associated with them, but you could access them if you knew the right invoke. So it started it started with us manually doing this process where like you do like 32-001 and see what popped up and 32-002 and see what popped up. And we started compiling these lists of just what all these invokes got to. And I eventually built software that just scanned all the invokes and compiled a list. You enumerated them? Yeah, that's right. That's awesome. Yeah. And so we were able to discover like all these I don't know. I have a lot of respect for AOL security back in the day. Like it was, um, I imagine, very difficult keeping everything secure. And for the most part, they did a good job. But yeah, there just lots of like permissioning issues that weren't done well in every case. And so like one of the invokes, AOL had a thing called quick checkout, which is like, I guess you could store your credit card and 
purchase things quickly without entering them. I, I don't know exactly, but one of the invokes brought up a form with like a random AOL member's quick checkout details, including their name and address and like last four of their credit card. <laughs> and there wasn't a whole lot you could do with that. I mean, maybe, maybe you could brainstorm some stuff you could do with that. But like that, that was the kind of thing that you could do by just like figuring out these special invoke numbers to access things that you weren't supposed to be able to do. Another time, one of these, again, I just had this prog running like overnight, every night, just scanning invokes. And I'd share that the list that it compiled with other folks in the, uh, in the community and a guy named VO watch. He, he realized that one of the invokes that it had scanned was AOL 7.0. And at that point, AOL 7.0 hadn't been released and it was just like an alpha version, but we quickly published it on, uh, AOL files and uh, it, it gained some some news attention too that that internal version of AOL seven had had leaked so it was kind of cool being part of that. Could you get the executable? Yeah, yeah, you got the whole executable. Interesting. Uh, yeah, you have to wonder like so if everything's built in AOL. I mean, you have like you know the regular DLLs and all that, but then so it was like the base client, right? And people don't update it, they don't update the base client that often. So then to get new content on AOL, they have FIDO and, uh, and, and then people can create new like windows and, and forms and stuff, right? Um, you, but you don't have to update the base client, but then it sounds like they didn't have restrictions on who could access those. They would just kind of do it like security by obscurity, right? <laughs> if, if the person didn't have a button to get there, then they let no one would ever make a call to it, right? Or something. I don't know. Yeah. Some, you know, a lot, a lot of things were locked down. But I don't know if it was a manual process for whoever was like uploading these files or creating these different forms, but it wasn't done well in a lot of cases. Yeah. So you're saying that once they locked it down, then only certain accounts could access those invokes? Is, is that how it works once they got locked down? Or maybe they would just change the invoke to something like with a really high number or something? I'm just, I'm curious how that worked. I think they were locked down to certain accounts at least they were supposed to be but for this aol 7 executable for whatever reason whoever uploaded it did not do things correctly and so we were able to access this form that let us download aol 7.0 and then release it on aol files did the invoke execute fido code is that how that worked did it execute fdo code it was yeah all you had to do was enter the the number of the invoke like there was a there was a tool in the star tool that just prompted it's like a single text field and a button that said like, all right, what, what invoke? And so we started out just plugging in random numbers and seeing it would pop up, but eventually automated that process to see what we could find that we weren't supposed to be able to find. I guess I'm asking the source code behind the invoke. So like you, you guys, you guys call it, but then what's the code that's running on the back end? Like, do you know what that was written in? I don't know. Okay. Yeah. I might've at one point, but <laughs> been a while. See so if you did um, invoke, would it bring up Windows or, or I think you call them modals? Wait, what is a modal? A modal kind of appeared on top of all the other Windows, and you had to interact with it before you could do anything else. Oh, okay. So it usually kind of disabled everything behind it. It's like the light box thing. Yeah. <laughs> like like kind of with web design or like the the paywall. Yeah, yeah, you got it. So I think some of the invokes might have brought up modals. Some of them just brought up like alert boxes. Um, saying you know, you're not allowed to access this or whatever, but a lot of them did bring up forms and most of it was innocuous. It's it just like you imagine in like every language that AOL supported had their own versions of different keywords. And so a lot of these were just invokes that let you access like translated versions of the welcome page, for example. But every form and probably even all of AOL's like internal forms too, like had corresponding invokes. And if they weren't locked down properly, then you could get to it if you knew the invoke number. Okay. So it sounds like they must have chained maybe they used FDO to build a lot of the interface and then could you click a button and maybe that was hooked up to like an invoke or something or, or an invoke could lead to like uh, another form which had multiple invokes on it. I'm just trying to picture. Yeah, something like that. I just brainstorming how probably did this invoke and then I guess AOL's server probably returned the FDO code to generate the form to your software and then the software read it and rendered the window, something like that. 
this is so many years ago, but like I'm I'm like like already thinking like how would I optimize it? Like I would like I would have like an in-memory, you know, cache and stuff, right? And like, you know, let's use varnish or you know, whatever. But I mean, back then, I mean, who knows what they were doing? I'd be definitely curious to know what like their system looked like and how they were handling that kind of load and stuff. Were they using caching? What was like stuff in RAM? I don't know. I have no idea. Yeah. One one way to think about FDO for any like web developers out there is and again, this is just how I'm remembering it is like FDO is kind of like HTML and CSS and a little bit of JavaScript sprinkled in. So it let you kind of lay out the design of these forms and control some of the interactions with it and the, and the styling of it. The, the way that I think about it in my head was AOL sending your software, all the FDO necessary to render, render these forms. And then the AOL software took care of rendering it for you, the user using the software. So once you created the FCO, what did you do with it besides run it locally? I'll, I'll add to that when we got started in this, like FDO was kind of this new thing that I don't know who first discovered it, but somebody realized that like you could do things with FDO that you weren't supposed to be able to do. And I actually have written in one of the, I, I wrote some articles on FDO and I, I wrote in there that like, we desperately want a manual to like tell us how to do this. Because it was largely us just like trial and error, figuring out how FDO worked. And like FDO is made up of like, they're called atoms, A-T-O-M-S. And it was just a series of commands that controlled again, the layout, but also some of the functionality of these forms. And there was this largely, I think the AOL files community, like just trying to reverse engineer how this all worked. And I said, in one of these tutorials, like, if you have a manual for this, like we, we could probably uh, collect a lot of money to like pay you for it because we, we saw it as if we had the manuals, we could understand exactly how this worked and use it to find exploits that otherwise wouldn't be possible. And as part of researching this, I discovered that like after I had left the scene, somebody had found a manual for it and um, they published it on, well, AOL Files was eventually renamed FDO Files, which we can talk about, but they, they published it on there. So all these years later, I finally got to see uh, FDO manual as part of my <laughs> preparation for this call. Did it work the way you thought it worked? or? Yeah, just sc scanning through it. Like I said, I, I finally learned that FDO stood for something other than what <laughs> what we all thought at the time. Just like just amazing that you think about like we were all working with FDO and like we didn't even know what it stood for. Like to give you a sense of how much we were just winging it back then. But yeah, it would have been amazing to have that manual back then. Yeah, for sure. Uh, there was a uh, such like an us versus them culture back then. It was it was funny. Um, I don't know. It was there's nothing else to really like hack on. I guess. I mean, there was of course like you know the general internet eventually that once you which AOL opened you up to the general internet and sure, but aside from that, you know most people were on AOL and they wouldn't hang out there. Before that, there was what, like BBSs and stuff like that. You could, do dial-up or dialing and stuff, but uh, it's kind of interesting to make AOL's interface do stuff it's not supposed to do and then impress other people. <laughs> I think that was a, a big part of it too. Yeah, it, it really was. Some other interesting exploits that come to mind are, um, well, so I was on Windows and there was this whole, most of us were on Windows at the time, but there was this like Mac community too of AOL hackers. Um, the big name that comes to mind is Hypa. And he got well-known for, he figured out, they were, they were doing similar like FDO type exploits on Mac. And he figured out that sending the right, so back up a sec. So FDO kind of controlled the layout, but it also had some functionality. And there were these things called tokens and tokens let you kind of like interact with AOL's backend by sending these tokens. So for example, AOL had this like locate member feature where you can type in somebody's screen name and it would show you like what, chat rooms they're in, for example. Well, what was actually happening there was the FDO would lay out this like locate member form and then you type in their screen name and hit okay. And it, that FDO would send, I think it was like an LN token back to AOL's server with the screen name that you typed in. And AOL would then return a response indicating where that person was. And so at some point, maybe it was BMB, he found like a, a token list showing all these different tokens and what they did. And so a lot of what we were doing, in addition to just like this FDO work, was trying to find exploits by executing these tokens and doing things that we weren't supposed to be able to do. So going back now, Hypa on Mac, he figured out that you could 
There was some token that let you register screen names, but they must have messed up the validation or something on the back end. And you could register with the right token. You could register screen names that belong to people who already had that screen name on AOL Instant Messenger. So you could essentially steal anybody's AIM screen name if it wasn't already associated with an AOL account. And back then, like three character screen names or three car <laughs> screen names like were a big thing because obviously there's there's a lot fewer of them than these these longer screen names. And so like if you had a three character screen name, like you were you were cool back in the day, right? So anyway, Hypa, once he figured out this this exploit, he wrote a script and he stole 4,751 three character AOL screen names. Wow. And then uh yeah, he shared a list of those. I remember like seeing that list and it had just the password for all of them. That list wasn't shared widely, but for the folks that were in the scene, like you could just go in there and like pick a three character screen name that <laughs> that sounded good to you. That also made uh, some national news coverage, if I recall. For a long time, my AIM screen name was K-O-N, K-O-N, and I'd gotten that through that same exploit that Hypa worked on. Nice. I wonder, so when you say these tokens, it makes me think of like, a stored procedure, like running on like an Oracle, you know, oh, it's some sort of backend, right? Where you, it's so it's like kind of like a function, right? But it's, it's code that runs in the database and you like, they have like the add screen name, like store procedure, right? And you just pass it the screen name and then it just adds it. Is, is that how you, I mean, looking back on now with more programming knowledge, is that kind of how you envision it worked or? Yeah, I think it was something like that. I think that's a good analogy or another way to think of it is like in coding, you'll have functions with arguments. I think like you can kind of think of it as like the tokens were the function names and like you could pass arguments to it and AOL's backend would try to do things with that. Because we we could craft the arguments ourselves manually, this this let us do things like Kaipa's stealing all the three character names because he was able to manipulate the token and the arguments that were sent to AOL's backend to process. Wait, are you saying you would... So it's not just passing a, a string to an argument that's expecting a string for a certain variable, you were saying you would change what arguments the token could take or something? Yeah. So like there was like a register screen name token, for example, and um, I, I forgot what it was. I don't know, EY or something like that. Right. And the the argument to that, I'm sure there were probably multiple arguments, but like was your screen name. And the way they, they figure out how to do these like indented screen names thing was I think the client, the AOL client, like removed spaces from the beginning and end of the screen names before passing it to this uh, like token to, to actually register. And so if you were just using the AOL software and you tried to register a screen name with spaces at the beginning, uh, it would strip them out and you'd wind up with a screen name without them. But if you used FDO to send that same token and you manually specified the screen name with spaces in front of it, then for a time, AOL was happy to process that and register your screen name with spaces in front of it. Okay, so this has this wholly reminds me of something today, which is very prevalent, but um, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, client-side JavaScript validation, right? <laughs> yep. It, it, this seems like uh, it's, it's exactly that. Somebody <laughs> is just ignoring the client, client-side JavaScript and uh, doing whatever they want, and then the server is just accepting the input. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so we, we were, we were for quite a while, a lot of us were just doing this kind of thing, playing around with FDO and trying to find tokens and passing arguments to them that we weren't supposed to in the hope of doing cool shit on AOL. <laughs> One example, um, somewhat more practical example is you probably remember like you had an AOL account and like you had an owner who's probably like your one of your parents and then there was a bunch of like screen names you could have on that account and you could aol had a feature that let you switch to any screen name that was on your account but if you wanted to there was no way to switch to a screen name that wasn't on your account well if you were one of us that had like dozens of screen names it was kind of a pain to have to log off and then like have your phone modem like dial up and, and connect so yeah, i figured out how to construct a form that prompted you for a screen name and then let you switch to any screen name, even if it wasn't one that was on your account. It's kind of a silly little thing, but um, just gives you a sense of what you could do if you if you were able to write FDO effectively. How long did it take to switch screen names? You mean using this yeah, method or? 
Yeah, I, I guess what I'm getting. Could you so because remember there was the the scroll limit, right? You could only scroll four lines in a certain time period. If you wanted to be really evil in the chat room and just keep swapping accounts and, and scrolling the four lines, I'm just wondering how, how long it would take to swap. That you could automate it and it would be pretty quick. Um, that's clever. I, I don't think we thought of that back then, but yeah, you could probably like, yeah, send a message, then automate switching to another screen name and have it automate putting in the password and then rejoining the chat and then sending it again and just going over and over. <laughs> it's a cool idea. I don't, I don't think we thought of it back in the day though. Yeah, that'd be pretty sinister. But uh, you know, there there were certain there were certain rooms that uh deserved it at some you know some points in time. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some other things that come to mind from um from that time period is, I think early on you could crack overhead accounts and there was no like two factor authentication on them. But by the time that I got on the scene, all the AOL employees had secure ID. I don't know what you call, want to call them dongles. But basically, like it was this device that all the AOL employees had, and it had a six-digit number that changed every minute. And when they signed into their account, it prompted them for it. So just old-school two-factor authentication. And all like the really like important overhead accounts had this the secure ID restriction on it. Well, BMB at one point he um, I don't know how he got a password, but he's maybe he cracked like an overhead account's password, and then he fished them for their secure ID pin. I don't remember exactly how he did that. He might've called them and pretended to be a boss at AOL and needed their secure ID pin, but he was able to get onto this overhead account and because he cracked their password and got their secure ID pin. Well, this particular overhead account had access to managed keywords. And what that meant is you could go and say like, when somebody types in this keyword in AOL, take them to well this like form or this website or, or whatever. And every time anybody signed on AOL, it automatically went to keyword welcome. And you'll probably remember that like famous welcome screen that it had. Well, because he got onto account with keyword management rights, he said, I want keyword welcome to take people to AOLfiles.com. And so, ah, did it tank the site or? <laughs> I don't think it tanked the site actually, but for, I think it only lasted like 45 minutes until AOL <laughs> did that change, but we got, I don't know, 80,000 hits or something in like 45 wow. minutes <laughs> because every single person that signed on to AOL during that that time period was brought to our AOL hacking site. <laughs> did um, AOL say anything to you guys? <laughs> I think initially AOL didn't care a ton about what we were doing, but over time, I think it became clear that like this was a pretty big community of people that were trying to hack <laughs> hack AOL. Uh, they started sending Rob, the owner of the site, some takedown notices or something like that, possibly because of the, he used AOL in the domain name and the name of the site. So after my time there, after I left that scene, he uh, renamed AOL files to fdofiles.com. And it was all the same content, but I think that helped him... Uh, get around some of the legal issues that he was having with AOL files when we were using that name. Interesting. Good for him for keeping it up. But it, so AOL files now, uh, so is it, was that domain taken over again or is it still just FAO files? So AOL owns AOL files. <laughs> I, I don't know if Rob transferred it to them or how that worked, but yeah, eventually they got control of the AOL files domain and he set up FTO files. Um, I got out of the scene in uh, late 2001 I think it was 2002 that he set up FDO files. And I think he kept it, Rob kept it running for a few years. There was different folks leading, leading that community at that time. Um, but yeah, he kept it running for a few more years. And I actually just, as part of prepping for this, somebody created uh, AIM-files.com, AIM files. I think his name is Zach. And uh, it kind of has a very AOL files like feel to it. And he just started writing about the AOL hacking that was going on back in the day. Yeah, I noticed that too. And then there's, like, so I just went to aol-files.com. It redirects to wiki.nina.chat. I don't know if you noticed that. That's funny. I stumbled across that site too. And yeah, for anybody who hasn't seen it, like somebody, actually, I think I, I found his his name. It was um, Tony Showoff. <laughs> I think I saw as the person who created it. Uh, apologies if I'm getting that wrong. But yeah, he, he's been archiving a lot of the AOL files and FTO files and, and other content from back in the day yeah he's also been archiving uh this podcast too i've noticed he um i, th I think he was posting on the facebook group um he, he really wants to like archive everything and not lose it it's almost like a because we can do those like archive.org but you almost pictures and stuff sometimes with that or like binaries 
around around 2009, I um, got interested in just like writing about AOL file stuff that we were doing back in the day. And uh, I, I went on archive.org and kind of scraped it and recompiled AOL files. And I still have that site running. But like you're saying, archive.org, amazing, but the, there's various things that it just doesn't capture. And so it's kind of a bad experience trying to navigate the old AOL files archive. And Tony Showoff and whoever else is involved with them, they've done a great job of just uh, putting this all in a wiki in a very like accessible format for going back and uh, just reading the, reading the articles and whatnot that we were working on back in the day. Yeah. Bravo, Tony. Good job. So am I, am I getting that name right? Tony? Tony? Showoff? <laughs> I, I'm not sure. Maybe uh, I'll put something in the show notes once I, I find out. Uh, I'll figure it out. <laughs> Another big part of AOL files worth mentioning is um, we had a section called AOL people that I maintained. And it was just a directory of all the people who were in the AOL hacking scene back in the day. And it was just a series of questions that I'd ask people like, you know, what, like, what's your handle? How old are you? You know, how long have you been hacking? Have you worked on any progs? Things like that. And um, I have an archive of this up too, but it's, it has about over 500 people like that were in, in the scene back then, including Flame, who you interviewed. Um, I, I assume it's the same, same Flame, but I occasionally see people, uh, I get people emailing me just saying like, hey, I Googled my old handle and I found your AOL people site and I haven't, I haven't seen, thought about this in, in 20 years, but it was so, so like cool to see my old, uh, <laughs> old information on this archive. So it's pretty cool. That, that's, that's really cool. What made you want to create that? I kind of started off like building these progs um, and eventually just lost interest in building the progs, but still, still was interested in, in the AOL hacking and like just fostering a community around that. And I think it was just, uh, just wanted like a directory of people that were involved in the scene. And after getting a few up there, you know, like other people started um, like seeing their friends on there and then one of theirs on there. So it kind of just spread. And um, at first it was like people just emailed me and I would just copy it onto the site, like manually create the pages. But eventually we set up a forum so that it was a little more automated. Was everybody pretty good about just putting alphanumeric characters in there? Or did anybody try to try to do like JavaScript redirects and stuff? <laughs> yeah, probably. Um, hopefully we were escaping things properly to to avoid that but yeah i, I don't recall there ever being any um, cross-site scripting attacks or anything like that with the with the content aol files also had a guest book um if you remember back in the day sites had guest books where people could just like <laughs> go fill out a form and say like hey cool site or whatever um but it is it's just so so interesting going back and looking at the guest book on aol files and uh <laughs> Just, just seeing the messages, the crazy messages that people wrote, and it was mostly like teenagers, you know, like uh, so not not the most like mature comments a lot of the time, but fun going back and looking at. Yeah, right, definitely. So, what are like some of the lessons learned, I guess, with AOL? Um, you know, over the years that you kind of brought with you, uh, I guess, you know, into to, you know being a developer and 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 all that. I'm still a developer. Um, we can talk about that a bit, but I'm I'm uh, I'm like a paranoid developer, and when it comes to security things, <laughs> I think doing that work on AOL back in the day just gave me an appreciation to the lengths that hackers will go through to try to break into your system. So I think I probably put um, more time and attention into the security of my stuff than I would if I hadn't been involved in that scene back in the day. Uh, w- one thing, one thing uh, I'll, I'll mention too. So. I was in I was in that scene until uh, probably late 2001. One of the big reasons that I got out, I kind of just maybe I got a little bored with it after a while, but I also started getting worried about legal issues, just being a part of this AOL hacking community. At that time, I was 10th grade and thinking about applying to college, and I, I didn't. I think I heard about various legal actions being taken against other people in the community. They were they were doing things like carding and, and and whatnot that warranted more legal action. But I was also still getting a little paranoid about um, AOL trying to find me or, or or take action against me. I remember one time, I got a phone call and I, I picked it up. And this woman was like, "Hi, I'm like Nancy from AOL. Can I talk to?" Um, she said my mom's name, and I was like, "Like, oh shit, this is it." This is, this is, this is where they're 
coming after me. And I was like, she's not here right now, but this is her husband. Can I, can I help you? <laughs> like trying to, trying to avoid looping in my mom to this, but it was just a marketing email. They just wanted her to upgrade to something, but just to give you a sense of uh, the paranoia that I started having towards the end of it. That's, it's a big part of why I just dropped out of this scene uh, in late 2001. Yeah, I could definitely see that. Did you ever go to IRC? No, no, not not really. I know a lot of the folks wound up going to the to IRC during and after that time period, but no, I never got involved in it. Nice. Uh, did you learn anything about releasing software through through AOL? So my experience with those progs and the BAS file, like I naively thought at the time, and for kind of a lot of years later, that like you could just build software and release it and people would find it and it would wind up spreading <laughs> and uh it took me a while to learn but you really need to have a like way to distribute it as well a way to market it to get it to people who need it and <laughs> that, that that was a took me a while to learn like i said but i think if if i could go back and re-release revolution and meridian and alpha 32 i would have spent a lot more time just marketing them afterwards not just kind of releasing them into the void and sharing them with a few friends and then moving on to something else Nice. Yeah, that totally makes sense there. Marketing is important. So I, I'm, lo I'm looking at your shout out list that you kind of shared with me before. Is this, are these are people that, that you knew or? Yeah. So yeah, I, I put together a, a list of folks that I worked with back in the day. So maybe I'll, I'll quickly give a shout out to, to them while we're talking about it. So like BNBM Rob, who I co-founded AOL Files with. Artem, who's still a friend of mine. He's a he was big into um, just trying to break AOL back in the day, and he's actually a security researcher now. Tom Fafalone, Hypa, who we talked about, the Knight Camo, uh, who became a well-known hacker. He hacked into Paris Hilton's cell phone, and uh, I think he went to jail for a little while, but uh, he's still around. VO Watch, OOO, we've talked about Blair, Ranma. Um, Adrian Lamo, too. Are you familiar with him at all? Uh, no, I'm not. So he was also a well-known hacker. Um, he was also, he had a site called insideaol.com where he also talked about um, just internal AOL things. Um, but yeah, he, he eventually got in trouble with law enforcement also for, for various hacking things. Um, he became famous because um, Chelsea Manning released like hundreds of thousands of classified army docs uh, to WikiLeaks. And he told Adrian Lamo about this. Uh, and Adrian Lamo turned him in to the FBI which I recall being a controversial thing in the, the hacking community at the time, whether that was the right thing to do or not. But um, yeah, he was a big part of the AOL scene back then too. He actually died a few years ago in 2018. Um, prior to that, probably in 2015 or 16, he had reached out to me and he, he's, he mentioned he wanted to create a um, kind of an archive of all the AOL hacking stuff that we had done back in the day. So similar to that, um, that wiki that we talked about, I think. So I shared a bunch of... Uh, the executable files and docs that I still had sitting around with him. Um, I don't, I don't think it, that ever got created, unfortunately, but um, yeah, he was a good guy. Interesting. Yeah. There's also, I think, lenshell.org.com um, where you can find, you can find a lot of binaries. So if like, it's not an archive.org, uh, if you go there, uh, you can definitely find some binaries too. Yeah, interesting. So what are you up to these days? Yeah. So I, that, that whole AOL time period got me hooked on, programming and uh, just building products. After AOL, I got into an online Tetris game called Tetranet. <laughs> um, you could just play, like, play Tetris against five other people and you got specials and stuff. And uh, I wound up building a prog to just play Tetris for me. <laughs> so that was fun. And in college, I got an online poker and uh, using that same like Visual Basic uh, skills, I, I built a, a bot to play online poker for me. That led to me trying to create some commercial poker tools, um, which got me interested in startups. And uh, I started a couple startups, one that I'm still working on called Precedent. It's a web-based timeline maker and road mapping tool. And that's where I spend most of my time working on today. Nice. And I think I read some of your blog and you had some really hard lessons learned with the online poker tool. Like it, it was, you didn't check out the, the competition first and it was scoped to something very specific and no one knew how to use it and stuff. And so like, you know, very humbly, like, you know, you learned all these things. Yeah. 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 The tool is called 
all in expert and uh, basically helped you figure out whether like going all in in certain situations was was warranted. But similar to the progs back in the day, like I, I built this thing and released it and uh, didn't spend any time marketing it. So quickly moved on to other things. Um, but it was that experience and and the earlier experiences with the progs that really drilled into me the importance of uh, distribution and marketing, um, which I'm, I'd like to think that I do a little better these days, but maybe not, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> Nice. So um, precedent, it, it's used for creating timelines for projects? Yeah, it's a general purpose timeline maker tool. So kind of the best customers are people using it for project planning. So if you have a project that's going to take a couple of weeks or a couple of months and you need a way to visually show all the different moving pieces to help yourself stay organized or just align your team, that's a good tool to use for it. Is it, is it geared towards like software development or is it like any kind of projects? No, it's for the project planning piece. It's uh, it's a lot of like project managers and project planners in larger organizations. Um, it's also used for a lot of other um, just varied use cases too. Like students use it to create timelines for school projects and people use it to create uh, autobiographical timelines and to plan upcoming moves. There's actually a guy at NASA who's, who uses it to... Uh, He's in charge of planning missions to asteroids, and he uses it to kind of lay out the the high level roadmaps for those those missions, which is kind of cool. Interesting. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to share about the time back on AOL? I don't think so. I'm really grateful for all the the folks uh, that came before me who kind of laid that groundwork to make it possible for the big hacking community that formed later on. Some of the folks that you've interviewed that were big in the scene and like. 95, 96, those, those really pioneers in, in the AOL hacking space. And I'm also grateful to all the folks that were in the scene when I was there and who I was involved with and who, who made the scene really special. Like others that you've interviewed have said, like, I, I do miss that time period. And I'm not sure something like that is ever going to exist again. Yeah, definitely. With the way the, uh, the, the internet went, it was a place in time. So yeah, cool. Well, thank you for being on the show today. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for doing this. It's It's been a blast just listening to the other, other interviews that you've done. And I look forward to more. Awesome. Thanks. Goodbye.